Imagine, demand, and build a world transformed. Welcome everyone to Labour 2024 Maintaining a Radical Horizon, which is promising to be a really interesting and certainly very timely discussion today. My name is Deborah Hermans and I've got the pleasure to guide you through this event. I'm based in South London, recently got elected as one of the London reps to Momentum's NCG. Um, I've also helped organise the World Transformed since 2016 and I work for the Rosa Luxemburg Stiftung in London. Before I start and give you an introduction to the topic, I just want to give a very quick shout out to TWT, who are celebrating five years of TWT this Thursday in two days. This is the fifth edition of TWT. In 2016, on the 24th of September, TWT opened its doors for the first time. So please, on Thursday, show some love to TWT on Twitter, share your favorite anecdote, and tell us why you think it's a really important project for the left. During the Labour leadership election, Keir Starmer, not that long ago, warned against the Labour Party lurching to the right and said he wanted to maintain the radicalism of the Corbyn years. The 2020 leadership election stood in stark contrast to that of 2015, when Jeremy Corbyn's opponents competed for who could denounce Labour for being too left-wing in the strongest possible terms. By contrast, in 2020, the debate has mo had moved on considerably. All candidates put radical economic reform at the heart of their campaigns. Keir Starmer's 10 pledges led many Labour members to believe that his leadership would not lead to a scaling back of Labour's ambitions or pivot away from progressive values. We are now six months into the new leadership and it's fair to say Starmer has taken a much more cautious approach since becoming leader than he did during his campaign. It would appear that some of his pledges have now been cast aside. Only this morning, Shadow Foreign Secretary Lisa Nandy suggested in the Today programme that Labour is no longer committed to higher taxes for top earners or reversal of Tory corporation tax cuts. That was his pledge number one. Some Labour insiders have argued it's the new leadership strategy to avoid committing to any policies for the foreseeable future. At the moment, it remains unclear what Labour policy will look like by the time of the next election in 2024. Ooh. But polls show that a large majority of Labour members, let, let me just turn the light on. Really sorry about that. But polls show that a large majority of Labour members and voters want the party to continue supporting a radical economic agenda and progressive domestic and foreign policy reforms. The trade union movement is united in its opposition to a return of austerity, and it isn't just hardcore Corbynites or Rebecca Long Bailey supporters who want to see Labour present a clear alternative to our neoliberal economic model. With the developing economic crisis and the climate crisis, the spectre of a new Tory assault on the working class, it's unlikely that Starmer will be able to avoid spelling out what Labour would or would not do differently for very much longer. We know you can't trick the electorate into voting for big economic change. If that really is your aim, sooner or later, you're going to have to argue for it or explain your different agenda. But the direction Labour takes is not just down to one man or parliamentarians. Labour is a party of over half a million members with affiliates who have a membership of many millions. 
It's a shame we're unable to bring our movement together at Labour Party conference this year to discuss the way forward for our party. But at next year's conference and in the coming years, Labour members will have the opportunity to have their own say. So today, we, re we are joined by a fantastic panel of speakers from different parts of the left and the Labour movement to get this discussion going. We will be talking about Labour's priorities for the coming years and how we can work together to ensure the party goes into the next election committed to transformative policies that address the multiple crises of our time. Before we begin, we have a few rules of engagement, which I'm sure you have heard before by this point. We want everyone to feel welcome in these spaces and for everyone's voices to be heard. So please bear this in mind when engaging with the chat or comment boxes during sessions. Please don't use inappropriate, rude or unkind language and please don't spam. Participants who violate these principles may be prevented from further posting in the chat or comment box. In the session, we'll be using a live transcription service called Otter. Attendees using Otter will have to follow a link and open the transcript as a separate window. The link will be shared in the, text in the chat box now by a tech volunteer. If you're having difficulties, please message the tech volunteer on the chat. And finally, TWT is free for all, but it's only made possible by the contributions of our supporters. So if you're able to, please consider supporting us at theworldtransform.org support to help us sustain our work all year round. What a better birthday present than to join the supporters network. Okay, so now I have the pleasure to introduce tonight's fantastic speakers. First up, we'll have James Meadway, who's an economist and author. He's the former economic policy advisor to Shadow Chancellor John McDonnell. Grace Blakely, who's an economist, author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization, and the host of a World to Win podcast with Tribune magazine. Hannah Arogue, who's the acting director of Labour Together and network of Labour activists, and she also convened the commission that oversaw the Labour Together review of the 2019 election campaign. Then we've got Andrew Scattergate, who's the co-chair of Momentum and West Midlands FBU Regional Secretary. And finally, last but not least, Nadia Whittam, Labour MP for Nottingham East and a former care worker. We're going to hear from each of our speakers and then we'll have a discussion and you get a chance to ask your questions. Do post them in the chat throughout and our volunteers will collect them. Okay, so I'll shut up now and I will pass on to James Meatway to hit us off. You go, okay. James. Thank, thank you, Deborah, uh, and thank you for the, the invite to speak. I was going to, it's always slightly um, harder to sort of start the discussion off, I think, than anything else. And, and particularly, I wanted to um, set a context that wasn't just about what the Labour Party is doing, because I think really any discussion of what we're doing at this point in time has to start with. Uh, something far bigger than the Labour Party and far bigger than any Labour leadership, which is a sort of civilizational level event that, that is COVID-19. Um, it's clear from um, the restrictions that, that Boris Johnson's announced today. Uh, it's clear from actually what, what the scientists are, are now telling us that, that COVID-19 isn't going away anytime soon, that this isn't something that we, we just sort of get rid of and, and then move on uh, much as we were, and that there's no real return at this point to a kind of pre-COVID uh, status quo, that even with a vaccine, you're looking potentially that you know, certainly the early signs are not particularly promising in this, that there's no long-lasting immunity to COVID-19, that even with a vaccine, 
vaccine. You're into a process of vaccination, revaccination, huge resource demands in that. There's a requirement for monitoring, for uh, surveillance, for various social distancing measures. And this is going to be a, a continual for a decent length of time. This is how we're going to uh, live our lives. And this is what society has to look like. And then I'd also say this, that even if we managed to overcome a sort of best case scenario we overcome COVID-19 relatively short order that it's managed down to a kind of endemic levels uh, and that we can get on roughly with, with a functioning society and economy of the kind we're used to what we know uh, certainly from the last you know, few decades and it's very clear now from, from the modeling is that epidemics and pandemics are increasing with number uh, uh, globally that this is related to climate change and to environmental damage of various sorts intensive farming being being quite a, a striking example and that therefore we're going to trip over more and more of these things and, and I stress this because I think partly what we can't do when we're confronted by something like this pandemic is, is think that we can just sort of go back to what we thought before or drag out the programs we had before and say, okay, this is still kind of applying now. I think we do have to think through what it means to live in a world that faces these kind of constraints where the consequences of climate damage and environmental damage are now unavoidable, even in sort of the global north in relatively developed, richer countries like Britain, it is not possible for anyone to escape these things. And then to a large extent, we're having to conduct a, a sort of radical economic program, not just around mitigation. How do we kind of limit the future damage? How do we restrain some of the things we're doing, but also adaptation? How do we make sure that the costs that we've already created are, are fairly borne? For all of this. And, and a simple example, you know, Dido Harding, supposedly in charge of the test and trace system, talking about this moonshot uh, test, it doesn't exist, but the moonshot test that, you know, potentially you'd have to pay for uh, if you wanted to take one before you could go into work. I mean, it's a direct cost in place in people before they can work. So, so this is what we mean by the cost of this in a fairly sort of uh, crude fashion. And I think this also forces a shift in the kind of strategies that we might think of for how we win change. Uh, in this country or probably anywhere else. Because one of the things that's really striking about the way the crisis has played out is the way it's sort of broken up the authority uh, of national political leaderships. Not necessarily everywhere, but certainly in this country, the way it's played out here has been rather like that. That you have a government that clearly can't get on top of this crisis for a, a stack of reasons that we can talk about. And then the necessity of local initiatives being taken. There are local lockdowns. There are local councils with, um, you know, so, so fed up with the, the, the contact tracing the government provides that the, they're using their own systems, the increasingly visible role, I would say, of metro mayors. Um, alongside that, you can see unionization taking place. There are scatterings of, of local strikes. There are uh, protests uh, against evictions. There's, there's a fair amount of activity occurring that is somewhat separate from what happens at national level. So if we have a program that starts to say, how do we adapt? How do we change what we're doing? And, and you can see elements of this, uh, I think, already emerging. I think the, the Women's Budget Group proposals around a, a care-led recovery that addresses this crisis of care, this crisis of work in general, was a good one. I thought Annalisa Dodd's proposals for turning the furlough scheme into a kind of support for part-time working um, it is a good way to approach this, that we are going to have to change how we work and live if we're going to manage our way through this in a, in a fair uh, fashion for, for everybody. That these are, these are good emerging proposals, and that's what a programme starts to look like. Allied, I think, to a strategy where you say, actually, the really critical bits of what we want to do, if we want to change the world right now, is building up those local bases of support, is working with the dynamic of the situation, which is fragmenting, I'd say, uh, the kind of national responses, and, and we can work with that uh, at this point in time. Now, where does that leave the uh, Labour leadership? I think the first bit 
on this is that I mean, bluntly, I think, and, and this is in the context of, of Keir's speech today and, and everything that's happened over the last six months, I think it's, I think we need a, a far more sort of transactional approach to, to leadership of, of a political party. What we had with Jeremy Corbyn was something really exceptional. I mean, he's an exceptional individual. A, a lot of us have known him for a long period of time. He's somebody who spent 30, 40 years on the left, very, very definite, very clear uh, about what he was campaigning for and about what he wanted to do. And him getting into leadership meant that you could see that there was someone who had a very, very solid vision of this is what his radicalism meant. This is how he thought about the world. This is how he was going to approach it. And to a certain extent, that was over and above the way that other politicians, and I don't mean this is an insult. I just think Jeremy Corbyn is not a conventional politician, but it meant it was over and above the kind of normal political considerations you might have that you might think, okay, we don't need to apply pressure in the same way to this leadership because we think it's going to do the right thing because there's Jeremy Corbyn. Now, that's a slightly different relationship. And it's one that I think hundreds of thousands of people really responded to. In 2017, you might even say, you know, a great chunk of the population really thought this was a this was a good person to to have potentially being prime minister, and and it's no insult, and I don't intend it as an insult to Keir Starmer to say he's, he's a much more conventional politician, uh, and I think that means we have to have a sort of transactional approach to the question of political leadership. That if you're a more conventional politician, you have a political process which is a process of calculating risks and pressures and balances and opportunities, and that we need if we're on the left to lay out what those forms of pressure we can apply are, what the strategies we think uh, we can win will be. Which I think brings me on to my, my second point, that if, if we have a leadership that says, you know, we want a broad church, we want people to be involved. And also I think there is a, a, a reasonably widespread commitment to a form of radical uh, economic change. If you take the Labour Together report, which I'm sure Hannah can talk more about, one of its conclusions, clear, the clearest I'd say, is that Labour's coalition uh, holds together if it has some sort of radical economic offer built into it. That's what gels all these different parts of the country that you're trying to persuade uh, to, to vote Labour. So the role for, for the left in that is to start to say, well, OK, this is the strategy and how we win. These are the elements you need to put in place. This is the kind of world we're now living in. Here is how you develop a radical economic strategy future that can actually win. And you phrase it like that. You don't just say we want to do this because it's good, it's necessary. It is good and necessary. You do it because this is how we win and we're the people who have those sorts of ideas. And that is where I think you can start to uh, apply some of the some of the pressure and to set some of the direction and to shape some of the arguments. I mean, if we want to talk about values, I'm kind of happy to. Like, I mean, the truth is, with Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, we didn't actually say very much about policy early on. It was a lot of stuff came out in 2017 uh, with the election with the manifesto. But actually, we, we did sort of keep quiet, relatively quiet, because it's a long time to the election. You don't necessarily say that much. But if we want to have a conversation about values, and, and that's what Keir Starmer and the leadership, leadership want to have, I'm happy to say, OK, we'll take that and use it. If you want to talk about security, fine. Let's talk about economic security. Let's talk about getting rid of zero-hours contracts. Let's talk about universal basic income as a really good solution to the problem of security. If you want to talk about fairness, I think that means you don't have to fetishize the 5%, uh, top 5% tax rate. Um, you know, that was a good idea in 2017. Maybe we want to adjust it a bit in 2024. But we do have to say we want a fairer tax system. And it's not uh, appropriate for, you know, in this case, the Shadow Foreign Secretary to sort of casually speculate about this sort of thing. We have to set some of these red lines. We have to say that's what it looks like. But if we want to talk about values, and this is an empty space to talk about values, let's get ourselves into that space and say, this is what it looks like. This is what the strategy is. That's how we get there. Final point very quickly. I, I think there is a need to overcome some of the fragmentation, demoralization that actually understandably set in since the election and then 
reinforced by the by the pandemic that you know we've all been a bit isolated a bit unable to talk to each other that's kind of literally where we are i think we have to try and overcome some of that and i was struck by james schneider's uh, proposal a couple of days ago for saying can we have a kind of national coordinating unit or center or whatever you might want to call it for the left and it sounds a bit grand but basically you get you know the socialist campaign group momentum trade union movement the different parts of the left in and around labor can you get them to agree a bare bones common program to offer some sort of leadership some sort of sense that here's a bit of direction this is where we can go with all this it doesn't have to be a grandiose set of promises but something that just starts to say here's a direction here's what the left looks like here's how we can start to get out of the fragmentation and, and reassemble things a bit and I'll finish on that point, and I'm, I'm looking forward to the discussion. Thanks so much, James. Really interesting. I was particularly interested in the idea of finding specific places where we can sort of apply pressure. So I hope we can discuss that more later. All right. So next up, we've got Grace. Grace Blakely, are you with us? Amazing. You still have to unmute on the screen. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Good. <laughs> Great. Okay, cool. Uh, thank you so much, Devs. Thanks for that introduction. Thank you, James. Um, thank you to everyone at, at TWT who has organized uh, this. Much needed, I think, um, yeah, center for us to be able to debate in what can be a bit of a kind of, you know, dark time on the internet at the moment. Um, it's good to, yeah, to have this kind of space to uh, to talk. So I'm going to talk today a little bit about some of the ideas in my book, The Corona Crash, which as you can see, I've strategically placed all around me just as this kind of like subliminal messaging. You can pre-order it now uh, at Verso. Um, yeah, if you just search uh, Grace Blakely, The Corona Crash, you can pre-order it. Um, so yeah, I'm going to talk a little bit about some of those ideas and uh, yeah, how I think um, the left and the Labour Party need to be adapting to, you know, what, as James said, is kind of the biggest, uh, well, one of the biggest challenges that uh, that we are, we are currently facing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think the, the kind of, the biggest challenge that we're facing today, um, being the emergence of this pandemic in the context of a set of overlapping ecological and environmental crises that fundamentally threaten our way of life and which actually mean that it's likely that we potentially see more pandemics, more kind of extreme weather events, um, all sorts of strains on all of our ecological agricultural systems. Um, the challenges that that kind of historical moment generates um, are pretty unusual and, and specific. And James was kind of hinting at, at some of that in his talk. I think the problem we're facing today, especially when we look at the way in which governments and, you know, what we would ordinarily call kind of neoliberal governments are attempting to respond to that crisis, um, is that the narratives that we've developed, particularly over the last kind of 10 years, the narratives that were really behind the success of the left in the UK and throughout Europe, um, which were all around kind of austerity, which were all around this idea. And they were, they were quite narrowly economistic arguments often, especially the ones that kind of made it into the public sphere, which was that, you know, we had these economic arguments against austerity, which was that the state was too small. We needed to uh, have a bigger state, which was investing in infrastructure, which was, you know, working to boost productivity. And if we did that, then basically the argument was, it was a standard so social democratic argument, that the pie would get bigger for everyone and then would be able to, uh, to redistribute it. I think the challenge that we face now is that whilst we developed a critique of austerity that was kind of, you know, coherent according to kind of basic social democratic um, principles and which was a kind of economic, uh, economistic, sorry, critique, we never really developed a critique of austerity as a class project, as a set of policies that was pursued by 
a ruling class that was, you know, that has you know unbelievable levels of of class solidarity that puts, um, you know, all other classes to shame in the ability that they're they're able to kind of in their ability to to have each other's backs, and austerity as as a class project is really what we should have been critiquing that whole time, um, because now we find ourselves in this position where we have a state that is willing to spend a little bit more money to keep the economy going, that has even before the pandemic said that it's going to kind of invest in infrastructure. Um, we have a Conservative Party that is, you know, Rishi Sunak obviously at least partly doing this out of political convenience because he has his eye on the top job giving things away. I went to a Spoons the other day and there was just a picture of Rishi Sunak's face in the window. And this is obviously all to do with his relation to the government's relationship with uh, with Tim Martin, the founder of Weatherspoons. But it's just, you know, he's obviously trying to cultivate that image and is doing so relatively successfully. So the arguments that we would want to throw back around, you know, you are uh, not spending enough money. We need to kind of expand the size of the state if we want to kind of compete globally, if we want a successful productive economy, etc., aren't really going to land. And I think this is indicative of um, something that perhaps we never really um, centered in our discussion and analysis of, of neoliberalism, of the kind of ideological um, apparatus that has been used by successive governments all over the world for the last 40 years. I talk a little bit in my previous book, Stolen, about how that was associated with a particular model of economic growth called kind of finance-led growth. Um, but you know, whenever we talk about neoliberalism, we talk about it, you know, this was an ideology that prioritized small states, free markets, um, you know, privatization, deregulation, tax cuts, etc. And that was all true to an extent. But neoliberalism, neoliberalism was never really about creating a small state. It was about creating a captured state. And we see today what that really means, just as we saw it during the financial crisis, which is that we have governments that are quite happy to put all of their quite substantial, if you're looking at the governments in the in the global north, all of their resources uh, towards saving a capitalist system that is struggling as a result of either its own excesses or a kind of um, external threat. Um, and you get, as I said, this kind of staggering level of, of class solidarity between states, uh, between financial institutions, uh, big corporations and international organizations, all basically working together to use their collective resources in order to maintain the status quo. And you can see how that develops. Um, you, you know, you can see the kind of class relations, sorry, at, at the core of that uh, by looking at the very clear hierarchy that's emerged in terms of who's going to get state help throughout the course of this pandemic. Because obviously, you know, the first thing that happens is Central Banks Act. Central Banks Act to pump tons of money into the system, basically to make sure that the financial sector and the biggest businesses are safe. They want to just kind of keep everything going, keep everything flowing. So the finance sector um, and big businesses get access to very, very cheap uh, money, basically. And that serves to keep them afloat, whilst also, as we've seen recently, pushing up asset prices and um, increasing the wealth of people at the very, very top. Then you start to see more interventions for kind of bigger businesses. So obviously the Bank of England then invents this new financing facility that's been used by lots of different corporations to help them with their financing needs. Then you see help for small businesses. So you have the corporate, uh, the coronavirus business interruption loan scheme, otherwise known as the bounce back loans, which are offered to some small businesses. Uh, then after that, you have help for mortgage holders. And then after that, after a huge amount of pressure, you eventually get the furlough scheme, obviously, because, um, you know, Boris Johnson and Rishi Sunak realised that if, we don't, if they don't provide some support for workers, then you're going to get a mass unemployment crisis, a mass 
personal debt crisis, a mass evictions crisis, etc. So that support is eventually provided. But there are still lots of people who are being left out. So people in universal credit who can barely afford to uh, to make ends meet. People in the private rented sector. We're on the cusp of a massive evictions crisis. Um, Self-employed people, for example. Uh, so all of these people are kind of uh, are left out. And you know, there's no thought for what's going on in the rest of in the rest of the world. Obviously, we're facing the biggest global debt crisis, sovereign debt crisis that we've ever seen in, in, in history, even worse than one in the 1970s, but that's not even on anyone's radar at the moment. So there's this very clear hierarchy as to who gets access to state support. And that's obviously based, as I said, on the kind of class relationships that make up modern capitalism. And what I kind of argue in the book and what I'm arguing in the book that I'm writing at the moment, actually, um, is that we're kind of living under this uh, this kind of this system um, that can loosely be called something like corporatocracy, right? Where you've got a very cohesive ruling class that is made up of the world's most powerful states, um, some of the most powerful international institutions, big monopoly corporations, and the biggest financial institutions. And they all help and support each other in various different ways. They're all connected in various different ways. And again, the, the COVID-19 crisis provides us with very, very clear evidence of that. The, one of the most interesting stories to have come out over the um, the kind of uh, corporate COVID corporate um, financing facility, whatever it's called, the Bank of England CCCF program, um, is uh, that EasyJet claimed about six hundred million pounds through this kind of basically central bank loan scheme, um, and at the same like maybe you know a month or so later it paid out a huge uh, dividend payment to shareholders it was also at the same time considering laying off workers um and introducing pay cuts and then we found out that six months earlier the ceo of easyjet had been in a meeting with the then transport secretary grant schnapp grant schnapps uh, Shaps, saying you can tell where my mind is um saying uh you can't introduce any um taxes like other european countries have on aviation because doing so um, would basically harm our profits. So this is, you know, you, you can see really the, the kind of cartel relationships that sustain this, um, uh, this, yeah, this kind of corporatocracy. So in this context, you know, what should the left be arguing for? Um, for me, sorry, my computer's just gone a bit dark, so I think it's about to run out of battery, but I should be fine for a few more minutes. Um, what should the left be arguing for in this moment? For me, it seems very, very clear that arguing against um, a kind of, you know, th this idea of a small state that isn't really that interested in intervening in the economy is not going to work because it's quite obviously not true. The thing that we need to be calling out is corruption and collusion. Um, and I think, you know, the, all the kind of political and economic turmoil we're seeing at the moment can be boiled down um, to two things. The first is a crisis of representation and the second is a crisis of living standards. And I think arguing for a kind of democratic renewal helps to tackle both of those things. Because people know that our economy is governed by this corrupt elite who basically don't give a shit about them. And also who they feel like they have no influence over. Most people feel like they have very little or no influence over all of the major institutions that affect their lives, whether it's the companies they work for, you know, their local government, the state, um, their public services, you know, the, even the businesses they interact with, they're just kind of loaded with bureaucracy of bureaucracy of bureaucracy because there are these huge, you know, monopolistic banks and and uh, and and businesses that um, you know don't really care that much about their customers. So in all these different areas, you're seeing this crisis, as I said, of representation. People just feeling like all the people that I see on the TV, all the people that I see in my political parties, all the people I see who are supposed to represent me, don't 
represent me. And that's really what I think we need to be arguing for. Um, we need to be arguing for a democratic renewal. I have just been told that I've gone over time, so maybe we can open it up more in the questions. But basically, I think that means uh, getting rid of all the kind of anti-democratic features of the nation state that exist at the moment, like the House of Lords, um, deepening the democratization of the state, almost like completing the kind of liberal revolution by, um, you know, doing things like democratizing the Bank of England, making sure that people are able to have a say in how public services are run, having socialized and democratized publicly owned railways, etc. But also extending the principles of political democracy into the realm of the economy. So really thinking about how the labor movement, um, the labor party, social movements uh, can work together to make sure that workers' voices, um, that communities' voices, that um, you know the voices of, of stakeholders more generally can be represented um, in yeah in all these different institutions. And I think that really answers uh, that real anger that people feel about knowing that they're being governed by this corrupt, out of touch and unaccountable elite. But it also gets to that sense of disempowerment that people have been made to feel after successive governments that have basically told them they're gonna change everything and then completely betrayed them. Thanks so much, Grace. And I was really interested at the end when you were sort of listing those various policies. And when we get to the discussion, I'd be really interested to find out sort of which of those you think are actually achievable uh, under STEM leadership and how how we can how we can get there. Um, so next up, we've got Hannah, um, Hannah Rook. Give it away. Oh, thanks. Hi everyone, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm here from Labour Together. Um, just a quick introduction to Labour Together. We're a network of activists from across the movement, all the way from progress to momentum. Uh, and we convene spaces where we can think through like new ideas and thinking on the future of the left. Um, so one of the things we did most recently was we conducted a review into the 2019 general election, uh, which James, who was on earlier, uh, was great to be on the commission for. Um, and one of the things, as James said, that came out of that review was a broad agreement across all these different factions that Labour needs a radical economic agenda. Um, and that there's really strong consensus for this among all the different groups that might vote for us. Um, so one of the things that we found that in 2019, a lot of our economic policies when taken individually were actually incredibly popular. Uh, so things like 73% supported increasing the minimum wage to £10, 70% supported cutting carbon emissions by 2030 to zero, 66% uh, uh, supported tax rises for anybody earning over £80,000. Um, and also, more interestingly, when we ask groups um, such as uh, we got data practice to do a kind of analysis of all the different groups we'd need to win over. Um, and some of those groups, including um, the kind of disillusioned um, older people and anti-establishment hard Brexit supporters, also um, kind of over 50% uh, supported that minimum wage increase and 42% uh, uh, said that they were up for a lot more redistribution. So for us, that was really, really encouraging because it showed that there was a real appetite in the country for a radical economic uh, agenda. And that's something that I think across the party, as James said, um, has sort of been accepted. Um, the biggest thing and the biggest stumbling block for this, which again came out of our review, was that when taken as a kind of package, people were more doubtful and also that they didn't trust us to deliver. So one of the biggest problems we're facing in the country is a real lack of trust. And that's the biggest problem that I think we've got to overcome uh, over the next four years. Um, and this is the kind of biggest question that I'm sort of thinking about, which is how do we rebuild that trust? 
Um, and I think, as Deborah said at the beginning, this isn't just about the leader. It's not just about the one guy who runs our party. It's about how our party functions and operates. It's about all of us. It's about how um, we change our political practices. Uh, so the extent to which we're organizing in our communities, the extent to which we're opening up our movement, uh, the extent to which we're kind of reaching out to people who might might not initially agree with us or might be initially distrustful. Um, so I think it's really important that we think about how we can make the Labour Party a much more open space and something that's open to sort of community organising and starting to build those much deeper relationships. Because uh, historically, I think that's what a lot of our party was founded upon. Um, so that's kind of one insight from our review. Um, the other thing that came out of our review that was quite interesting was that the 2019 manifesto was slightly overloaded. So we ended up with a lot of different policies uh, and there was kind of a new one coming out every day and it was quite difficult for people to understand um, what, what we were standing for uh, because there were so many different things coming through. Um, so I think, again, we've got to maybe um, stop our kind of addiction to policy making. Um, sometimes we just need to figure out what our priorities are. Um, and we need to figure out what our values are. And as James said before, I think that's a really important distinction. Uh, so having a discussion about values is really important, but policies aren't kind of the be all and end all um, of every part of political um, kind of management. Um, I also think the other thing that is interesting to think about is the fact that there's a huge amount of time between now and 2024. Um, the world's changing so fast. Uh, it's been changing for many years now and the kind of scale of the challenge of things we've got to get to grips with is quite scary um so for me the kind of most interesting line uh, from Keir's speech today was um when he said you know what we say at the next general election isn't written yet but it will be rooted in labor values it won't sound like anything you've heard before it will sound like the future arriving and i think that's quite an exciting challenge um because for me maintaining a truly radical horizon is by being open to new thinking uh, and not kind of committing ourselves to things that are set in stone, but continually thinking about how do we put into practice our socialist values in changing circumstances. Um, so I think this can sometimes feel a bit scary, but there's so many interesting, amazing and brilliant ideas. Uh, I mean, I know Grace was just talking about some really interesting stuff there in terms of like how we conceive of deeper democracy, how to truly democratize democratize our society um, and I think these are things definitely worth thinking about I mean there's lots of work from kind of Roberto Unger on democratizing the knowledge economy which I'm really interested in um, also kind of things around sort of interoperability as a kind of response to tech monopolies uh, which is again quite an interesting emerging chain of thinking um, and then just generally kind of embracing maybe a more radical approach to international taxation. Like these are all ideas that I think we're yet to write down in policy, but are still emerging. Um, so I think we've got to be flexible enough to engage with this thinking and to keep engaging and renewing our thinking. Um, so I think that's really important. So I guess the two things that I've talked about here is that both in terms of building trust and also in building policies for the future, uh, both require us to change our political practice. It means us being more open uh, to people, to building a movement that kind of is beyond just what we already have. Uh, it involves us being flexible, being able to change our minds. Um, I think one of the biggest things is like, if you believe that the world can change, you have to believe that people can change. Um, so again, it's about us persuading people that labor is the kind of 
party that they need to vote for. Um, and I think also what we need is more spaces for genuine discussion about all these issues. Um, I think at the moment our party is highly, highly, highly factionalized um, and you've got lots of uh, bad faith on both sides. Um, and somehow we have to kind of overcome that to be able to at least create the space for us to have these genuinely radical discussions um, and try and work out what, what the policies will be that put our labor values into practice um, and even have a conversation about what those labor values are. Because um, I think sometimes we often speak about the same thing, but we're using different words. Um, so I think that's really important. And I think TWT has actually made some really good progress on this. Like some of the events that TWT has run over the past sort of five years have been an attempt to convene these spaces. And it's been about giving everybody a say and a kind of seat at the table and equal hearing. Um, and I think the more that we can do that kind of work, um, the more that we can start to build the kind of movement and party that we need to be. Uh, because again, this isn't just about influencing kind of the top or the leadership this is about us growing a movement and a party that is capable of this kind of political work um, and that's what we'll need if we're going to kind of win the next general election and have a truly transformative uh, agenda because that doesn't just come through what you write down on a manifesto it comes through how you've been living breathing and practicing politics for the last four years um, so those would be my rough thoughts um, really keen to hear what everybody else is saying so I'll leave it there Thanks so much, Anna. Thanks so much for joining us. And I, I mean, I have to say, I really, really agree with you on that point that we have to, uh, we have to know that we can change people's minds, and you know, we have to be willing to believe that. Otherwise, sort of, what is what is the point? Um, right. So next up, our penultimate speaker is Andrew Scattergood from Momentum. Take it away, Andrew. Thanks, Deb. And hello, everybody. And, you know, thanks for having me and let me speak at this meeting. Now, what our priorities should be and the strategy needed should be at the forefront of everyone's mind on the left. Now, I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that we find ourselves in the midst of one of the most crucial, important times for the left and perhaps a generation with a pandemic still raging, with public services crumbling, with mass evictions imminent, with a brutal recession looming, with a disaster Tory Brexit on the horizon. And all of this on top of 10 years of Tory austerity and attacks on our class. Now, with all of this on our minds, it is easy and forgivable to consider that the task at hand is too great, that the left, who now have limited power within the Labour Party, have missed the opportunity and must concede on the ground we've won. Having everything stacked against the left is nothing new. With the election of Jeremy Corbyn, the left, and rightly so in my opinion, turn their efforts to supporting Corbyn and building party political power, influence and policy. The reality is that with all the faults of the Labour Party is still the best vehicle we have to bring in about rapid and long-term change. But having said that, because the majority of the active left was embedded in the Labour Party for the last five years, our attention has been taken away from the social and labour movements that we built and used to progress our demands for the many decades before. Now, what has become abundantly clear to me during the aftermath of the general election is the total lack of strategy and the discipline required to deliver an effective left. The left is too reactionary, taking opportunity, opportunity sometimes if presented and not engineering the opportunities ourselves. We mobilise when our class is threatened, but often lack the long-term strategy to build political power from this. Although this has meant we have achieved some great victories, it has also meant our defeats are at times catastrophic. If we are to have a real chance of radically changing this country and securing a powerful future for the left, 
then we must address our ability to organise across the different movements and build sustained and ingrained power within our communities. Now, apologies for using an analogy here, but you can't build a skyscraper without solid foundations. Now, this is one of the reasons why I stood to be on Momentum's NCG. Momentum has, over the last five years, built a vibrant and sizable movement on the Labour left. It attracted thousands of seasoned and new Labour Party activists and built influence within the structures of the Labour Party. The question of what happens now and what the, and what the strategy should be, in my opinion, includes Momentum as a vital component. Now, the new leadership of Momentum is willing and relishing the challenge to tackle this head on. We are aiming to take that initial Corbyn enthusiasm and now reinvigorate it and rechannel it into, it into building power in our communities. And by doing so, building power within the Labour Party. But it's one thing saying it, it's another thing doing it. But on this, we have already started. Mass evictions, as I said, are a real threat for many right now. This is why we have launched our housing campaign this week with the aim of organising our members to support housing unions with resisting as many evictions as we can. This is about using direct action to not only assist and stand in solidarity with those in our class who are under attack, but it's also about laying out the injustices and core issues that really matter. We must be leading on the left, whether the leadership of the Labour Party comes with us or not. This is just one example of the many that the momentum will be now taking as its direction. That doesn't mean that we will take a step back from our involvement within the Labour Party, quite the opposite, in fact. In Hi everyone, I'm not sure um, what's happened there. I think we've lost Andrew. He did warn me that his internet actually broke down last night. Um, it was just getting interesting. I could try and finish his speech for him as we do sit on the same Momentum NCG, but I don't want to do that. Um, so um, what I'll do instead, um, I will get Nadia up and hopefully um, by the time Nadia has finished, Andrew will be back with us. And just to say, do please post your questions in the chat, directed at one speaker or at all of them. All right, Nadia, are you, are you okay to, to have a go now? And you might still have to unmute yourself. Yeah. I am. Nadia. Thanks so much, Deborah. I'm like the support act until Andrew sorts himself out and comes back. Um, firstly, thank you so much to the TWT and to all the organisers of this event and to everyone who's here today. Um, and it's great to follow on from Andrew, uh, James, Grace and Hannah, who spoke so eloquently earlier. There's so much there that I agree with and a lot to discuss. We've heard a lot over the course of this festival about the need for a radical transformative socialist policy platform in order to respond to the huge crises of our time from COVID and the upcoming recession to the climate emergency and of course the threat posed by the global far right. All of these crises need socialist responses and that's at a time that 
our socialist movement feels pretty deflated and demoralised after a devastating election defeat, which just crushed the hopes and the optimism of the Corbyn era. Look, I probably never would have become an MP if, if it wasn't for the Corbyn movement. I was still a teenager when I went to his first campaign rally in Nottingham. And since then, I've just seen the Labour left grow exponentially. We've made so much progress as, um, as a movement and we've built a wealth of organisations and institutions through which we can have these, um, these discussions and through which we can promote socialist ideas from things like Momentum to alternative media like Navara and of course the TWT itself which I remember when it was first floated was quite controversial um, and is now just a well-loved staple of the Labour conference political calendar. So where does the Labour left go from here? Well I think the first thing to say is it's vitally important that the Labour left doesn't repeat the mistakes that much of the Labour right made during the early days of Corbynism. So the negativity, the personal attacks, the constant focusing on the past rather than looking forward into the future, that inspires no one and brings no one with us. I'd like to reflect a bit on James's comments about speaking about values and how these can be progressive. We can be talking about security and introducing, well, what really aren't that radical ideas. They're just the ideas that the times demand, I think, things like universal basic income, um, electoral reform. Um, and I think it's really important that we're pitching a combination of class-based arguments and values-based arguments and sometimes expressing one through the other. So whilst people might not understand um, that a working class person in Wigan, uh, a white man in his 60s say, has the same class interests as um, a young trans woman in Camden who works in the gig economy, I think there is a shared understanding of powerlessness, which is just a manifestation of a class argument. And what James says is absolutely right. We need to get into the space to have those arguments. And really, that's going to be my focus as a left wing MP and as a socialist campaign group member is supporting care um, and also being critically supportive so that we can be selling these ideas to I suppose a different part of the left I think that's fair to say so that they can then sell those ideas to the country. The Labour Party and the movement that it was founded to represent and other people have said this and they're absolutely right it's never been just about the leadership it's about our almost half a million members and the over six million workers in trade unions. That was the case when I joined the Labour Party under Ed Miliband. It was the case under Corbyn and it will remain the case under Starmer. 
I've been really enthused during the course of um, TWT sessions hearing members talking about advancing socialism, about CLPs making a difference in our communities, whether it's mobilising picket lines to setting up food banks or campaigning for affordable housing. And I think what all these examples show is that socialists don't have to wait for a general election or even for the next Labour conference to have an impact. Because in the face of all these attacks from the Tory government, we need to be in our communities, defending people in the here and now, and at the same time, changing hearts and minds in the process. I think a really good example of this actually is Momentum's current campaign on evictions. And I know that they're running this together with renters unions and it's, it's a combination of training people to know their rights and mobilising against dodgy landlords and then the national campaign too for an eviction ban. Speaking a little bit about Labour's policies then for the next election, I think it's, as others have said, I think James said this, that it's it's fine, I think, that we don't have a clear policy platform yet. That means that there's everything to play for and we better get to it. But it is clear that Labour needs a clear set of policies, not just individuals to organise around. So this time last year, I was really proud. In fact, this is probably one of my happiest and proudest political achievements was being small part, but a small part of the team that um, helped to get the Labour campaign for free movement motion through conference. And that motion changed Labour's approach to immigration. It put policies like closing all detention centres, ending no recourse to public funds, and giving migrants the vote on the agenda. Similarly, of course, the Green New Deal um, has helped shift Labour policy in a more radical direction when it comes to climate change, and to its credit, has been holding the party to account ever since. Of course, this year we don't have a conference where we can campaign or pass motions, so we need to find other ways of doing that, and we don't know when we're next going to be able to have a conference. So, for example, I've been really proud to speak at John McDonald's Claim the Future series, which I think is just a fantastic initiative. Um, it's, it's been bringing together socialists and labour, civil society groups, um, trade unions, to really imagine and campaign for a different future. So from the end of land, landlordism, demanding um, the abolition of no recourse to public funds, the policy that leaves so many migrants destitute and homeless. I want to um, just mention Grace's points on the economy because I couldn't agree more. I think we've certainly in the last five years shifted the ground economically when it comes to austerity. And our task now, um, sort of accelerated by coronavirus, is to develop this. And we started doing that in the 2019 manifesto. Um, but as Hannah said, it felt overloaded to people. And that's not because 
there was, you know, in my view, a single policy in there that shouldn't that shouldn't be a policy implemented by a Labour government. But I think we didn't have a narrative to tie it together. And thinking a bit more about what that should be, we don't want um, state capitalism. We want new forms of democratic ownership and power building and power sharing and non-hierarchical forms of decision making. So workers control of public services, community control. Um, For example, I think there are very strong arguments for bringing finance into public ownership. I'm really enthused by the work of the Women's Budget Group um, and Annalise's commitment to a green care-led recovery, which is something that is completely being ignored by this government, which thinks of um, of a green industrial revolution as being all about men in hard hats, when actually the care sector is eight times less carbon intensive, creates two million new jobs. Um, I'm getting a please wrap up soon and I'm not finished. So I'm going to rush to the end. Um, just summing up then, um, I sort of agree that in some senses we're having to be more transactional because we're having to have different negotiations within the party. But as Andrew was saying, we also need to be organising outside the party. So movements like BLM, XR, which have been unconstrained by short-term electoralism, have already helped to shift public opinion. And when we look at history, we know that huge progressive transformative change has come from the streets before it was gradually and often reluctantly accepted by politicians. So my final message to people watching would be to stay, to get involved in the positive outward facing campaigns, to set up and support Labour campaigns like Labour Tenants United, Labour Homelessness Campaign and so on, find supportive MPs, pitch articles, organise events, pass motions in your CLP when you can. And of course, don't just focus on organising in Labour. Also throw your energy into supporting grassroots campaigns, join a renters union, get active in your local union branch, join the climate movement. Because as we've already said, we can't wait for a Labour government to address the crises that we're facing because they're happening now and we need to take them into our own hands. Thanks so much, Nadia. Some some really, really interesting points from you there. I'm going to bring in Andrew very quickly to finish this point, and then we will uh, get to the questions. Thanks for coming back, Andrew. Yeah, no, no problem, Dave. Sorry about that. The, uh, the broadband decided to pack up on me. I was just explaining about the Momentum's housing campaign that Nadia just, just touched on, you know, and about us using that as a way to show, you know, support and solidarity with our class who, who were under this attack of, of eviction. Um, but I guess the point that we're trying to do in Momentum is that we're showing that we need to be leading on the left um, and whether the leadership of the Labour Party comes with us or not is, is, is entirely up to them on this one. And, and it's just one of an example, one of many examples that Momentum will now take in, in, in with the new leadership and how we tend to approach things. Um, but just on like building an effective strategy on the left, um, we must develop the tactics and um, the tactics along with a strategy to, to achieve this, but it does involve 
as much um, involvement from those on the left as possible. And we recognise that. And just to touch on James Schneider's comments about a socialist coordinating committee, which which James mentioned earlier, um, or bringing the unions, a socialist campaign group, momentum um, together. It's not a new idea, um, but I think it's right now this would be potentially a, a good start for where we, we need to be going. But alone, that would not be enough. Um, a room of left leaders sharing expertise and developing a strategy is good. But this in itself would not deliver. And, and, and I just want to just touch briefly on the lessons that the left never seemed to learn. Um, and one of these lessons is something that trade unions learn very, very quickly. And it's summed up as this. You are only as strong as your members. If you want to lead a trade dispute, if you want to win something, if you want to improve your lot in the workplace, you can't do that on your own. You have to go together and you have to bring everybody with you. And I don't think that the, the Labour left um, truly learn this. And this is something that the lessons that us in Momentum and the new leadership we want to do. We want to involve our members at every single level. And this is how you build that movement by involving them, making sure that they've got their say, that they help you come to the conclusions for the things that you need to do next. Um, but I suppose also what I just wanted to touch on is that our members, uh, Momentum members, they, they're also trade unionists, climate activists, anti-racist activists, housing activists, but they are all Labour Party members. So I believe that Momentum is ideally placed to join up the left and be integral to the coordination that is needed. And any strategy is not going to work if the very people you're trying to unite are not included. So just very, very quickly to wrap up on how we ensure Labour stand on a socialist and transformative platform at the next election. Well, the resistance by Starmer to setting out alternatives and political solutions is, is in some cases being applauded by some as, as potentially a good strategy. And if it's not being referred to that, it's effectively saying that we're not going to know what the world is going to look like in four years. And I totally reject this because I think there's a there's you know there's layer crises here from pandemics to recession to a, a climate emergency and lots lots in between that. And we do know what certain areas of the world are going to look like in four years. And people out there are currently being presented by the solutions, no matter how bad they are, by the Tories. And this is something I don't think we should be positioning ourselves in. So in the last five years, the Labour left developed policies that would not just work in the short term, but would be effective and always relevant in the long term. The Green New Deal would begin tackling the climate emergency. Investment in public services would ensure we had a good, uh, good public services for all. The advancement on workers' rights would mean people could stand up and advance their lot within the workplace. Mass house building would go a long way to addressing the housing crisis and so on. These are policies that are popular and will be relevant in four years' time and beyond. And perhaps above all else, they're going to be critically needed. And if these policies and others, um, th th these policies and the others are what we need to maintain and build further support for. So to sum up, let's, let us think what we have going for us and what we need to base any strategy on. And that is that voters didn't reject our socialist alternatives because they didn't like or understand our policies. Where we failed was to have the overarching strategy across the movement to sustain the political vehicle we need to deliver it. And that can only be rectified by building a strong coalition of the left across the party for a transformative agenda. And that's where I think we need to start. Thank you. Thanks so much, Andrew. A really, really good ending to the sort of first set of speeches. Um, if we could bring up all of the speakers onto the screen now. Thanks so much to the ever wonderful tech volunteers of TWT. Um, I wanted to uh, give you all a chance to sort of um, respond if there was anything you wanted to respond to. Um, feel free to sort of raise your hand. Uh, very traditional. Um, if if you do have a point that you wanted to make, I tried to weave it into my comments earlier. Go on. 
No, I don't have anything to say. I, I, I tried to weave it into um, my opening remarks. Which I, guess I, mean, if, um, I can Go say on, something. <laughs> um, yeah, so it was really interesting hearing what everyone had to say. I was really interested to hear, um, especially Hannah's presentations, presentation of uh, the kind of findings in the Labour Together report. And I think that point that we got a bit addicted to policy making is true and is important. Um, and, you know, it was the combination of having a seemingly a new policy out every week and then a campaign around another policy that was translated into another thing that the, the leadership was supposed to be dealing with, but then lacking the kind of um, coherence around communicating that idea that really took away from the kind of coherence of the, of the manifesto. So yeah, I think the point about values is, is really important. I think that the, the trouble we often have with values, we're talking about values, is that um, you know when you have a narrative that's based around uh, shared values and the idea that you know um, we have a, a set of kind of common goods and, and common goals that we all we're all striving towards, um, it can end up sounding vacuous, right? Um, or at worst, uh, you know, actively exclusionary of certain groups. Um, and I think some of the most interesting stuff that we now know about this comes from someone called Anat Shankar Asario in the US. Um, I've kind of learned quite a lot from her and her whole frame around messaging, which I think is obviously what a lot of us agree we need to we need to perfect, is that you need to start with your values. So you need to start by constructing who, you know, basically what do we all have in common, right? Those are the most effective political messages for the left. It's like, we all want a stable, you know, income, a roof over our heads, a better future from our, for our family. But these things are getting in the way. These are the problems that we have to face, whether it's, you know, climate breakdown, inequality, whatever. The thing that maybe I think we, um, we actually haven't gotten right either under Corbyn or, or now is that you need to coherently be able to state who is responsible for causing those problems. Otherwise, and this is what's really interesting, voters will find someone to blame. So if you as a voter hear half of a story to half of a narrative, narratives have beginning, middle, middle and end, they have heroes and villains. If you hear half a story, you'll fill in the rest in your own mind. And if the half of the story is, you know, we all want a better life for our kids, but inequality is getting in the way, end, you'll think, okay, what's going on there? In comes the far right. The reason that we have inequality is migrants, benefits, scroungers, whatever. So I think, yeah, we need to be able to develop a little bit more of a coherent kind of class narrative about who is responsible for those problems. Now, we obviously saw some research the other day from the Tax Justice Network saying just blaming billionaires for everything doesn't quite work, which I think is legitimate. Um, but, you know, there are very easy ways to do this, right? And I think specific examples of wrongdoing, which there are many, I've only touched on some in my talk, this kind of, you know, corporate... Um, collusion and, and corruption that we see so often really brings those messages home and allows people to understand actually what's getting in the way of like all these things that we we, we collectively want so yeah in terms of in terms of values and narrative that's really what I've kind of like to see more from um from Starmer at the moment I saw you nodding along quite a lot Hannah do you want to maybe come in and come in now um, yeah, definitely. I think, Grace, you're really right on a lot of that stuff around um, the importance of a clear narrative. Like, we really are very bad at telling stories on the left. Uh, we're overly technocratic. We don't seem to be able to connect what we're saying to what people think or feel. Um, and that's something that actually the alt-right has gotten very, very good at. 
Um, and that is a huge like strategic challenge for us is learning how to tell these stories better. I think you're right about the idea of having like a clear villain or like what's the dragon we have to slay. Um, that's really important. Like that again, that's a kind of classic narrative technique, but not enough thinking or thought has gone into this at all uh, for a very long time because i think sometimes on the left we're really like self-defensive we're like oh if we have all the facts right then we can like prove that we're right about this whereas we don't lean into the fact that we feel this is right and actually other people feel like this is right too um i think as well a lot of the bits that haven't maybe been explored as much on the left have been about inequality of power so we talk a lot about inequality of like material outcomes but we rarely talk about inequality of power and actually if we're moving into a shifting system that's all over the place um i think inequality of power is something we really need to understand and get to grips with um so i think these are definitely areas that we need to look at um so yeah i think accept your points about like things being quite vague but again this is all like new territory that we have to work through i think you go andrew yeah, I just wanted to come in quickly on talking about this thing about policy and, and whether we're too focused on that, because I think that's a really important question we have to answer right now, because there is a lot of criticism on Starmer about whether he's too light on policy. I mean, my, my personal opinion, he's completely void of policy. He's not talking about policy. And it's, it's almost that position that if I don't talk about policy, I can't be criticised for the policies that I've produced because I don't have any. And I think the problem we've got is when we're having those conversations, so for people of us who are you know up and down on the, the roads knocking on doors talking to, to voters about this we have nothing to say to them other than you know platitudes and and, and you know all about their values a party of values and we still don't really know what those are so when we're talking about policy I found I think I found really really good with with what Corbyn did was the policy could be used in any sort of situation if you take the sort of green new deal you could talk about that about workers rights and about the importance of of, of, a, of green new jobs and how um you know, the, that had to be a just transition for workers. You, you could take all the different elements and you could turn them into different conversations and you could have those conversations with people and try and explain to them why what the Tories were doing were wrong and why what Labour were offering was, was the best alternative. At the minute, I, I can't have a conversation. I can't go out in, into my neighbours and talk about what Labour can offer differently. All, all we can talk about is what's wrong with Boris Johnson and, and his policies. And that is all they're hearing. All they're hearing is what the Tories think about things and I heard something interesting it was on a podcast a podcast I believe that um that nurses and, and, and sort of healthcare workers were um sort of saying that you know it's, it's terrible and, and and everything that's happening and the policies are, are bad and things like that but but it, it's not anyone's fault nobody saw this coming you know what there's no alternative to this this is how it is and these are the kind of things we have to challenge so I think there has to be a balance but I think without any policy I think we, we we're going to struggle over the next few years Thanks, Andrew. Does anyone else want to come in before I go to questions? Yeah, I think um, a lot of what Andrew says is right. I I see less of a problem with not having a coherent policy, um, a, a coherent set of policies, because realistically that's not going to have happened um, during this early stage of Starmer's leadership and particularly um, during the pandemic. But I think what we are missing and what we, we need urgently is... A political project. I think that's a bit different to um, to a set of policies, and that's what I see the role of the TWT, the Socialist Campaign Group, Love Socialism, um, all of the Labour campaigns, like Labour campaign against homelessness, etc., um, as being really instrumental 
in doing because I, I genuinely do feel optimistic that we can get into that space and make those arguments and win them. James, do you want to come in or? Well, well I can do. I, I suppose, I mean, look, I, I kind of agree what, with what's been said. I think all of that. Um, the, the one that, that's sort of striking, there's two things. One is that, that, that we, had, we had kind of policy detached from a strategy. Um, if you like, we just had a sort of list of things and they didn't match up with that. How are you going to make those things happen? And primarily you sort of want to win the election. So how is your policy going to get you towards winning the election so you can do the things? And it, and it kind of got, it got slightly separated. Uh, and th there's reasons why that happened, but it was not, not a good place to be. So I think we need a, a much sharper view and strategy. And we need to say, if we want to argue from the left, I think particularly with this Labour leadership, it has to be like, these are the strategic reasons to do it. It's not just like, we think this is a nice idea, but this will appeal to these people. This is how we're going to assemble a majority. This is how we get a, a coalition uh, together that, that will support Labour. That's one thing. The other one, very quickly, was just something Grace said about um, basically you, you, need, you can't just have a, a story without a hero and a villain. That You, you, have, to have, a, you have to have somebody, you, know, you have to have sort of antagonists and protagonists and that sort of thing. And I think it's completely correct. But it also, this is a policy question because it then sets you up into saying, for example, if we say, you know, we would like to talk about businesses. We can't just go, isn't it great? Aren't businesses nice? Aren't good businesses really good? You have to say, what are bad businesses? And that means you actually have to start saying, these are the bad businesses. And, and I think there's far too much wariness about getting into that sort of more antagonistic story uh, from some parts of the party. You just want to kind of look like everything's nice and say kind of business-friendly things. It's not going to work. You've got to say, these are the good businesses. We're going to encourage these ones. And these are the bad ones, whoever they might be. And we can all come up with a few examples and, and, and do that quite systematically. And that, that's a much more convincing policy narrative and story and, and all the rest of it. And just, you know, generic motherhood and apple pie, really. I'm really interested in what James just said about the lack of strategy as opposed to policy. Um, and I don't know whether anyone else sort of wants to come in on that and like with concrete like propositions of how I guess we learn from the past five years um, in, in that sort of domain. I think it's an important point and I think that one thing to bear in mind when we're making our critique and our suggestions or more than suggestions but our arguments from the left is to to make them in reference to the Labour Together report because that's the report that the leadership is using. Um, that's what it's basing its strategy on. So if there's something that you disagree with, then we need to show, and, you know, I, I broadly agree with the thrust of that report, broadly. Um, and, um, yeah, I think, I think we need to show why we think that is the wrong strategy, why this doesn't successfully unite our coalition of voters, why it strays too much into um, one discounted recommendation of the report and not another, for example. Probably music to your ears, Hannah. Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, that report, I mean, just to kind of give you a sense of how it was written, uh, and James will remember this, um, we wrote it on kind of Google Docs with everybody putting edits. And I can tell you now, we sort of had a commission of 15 people, 
all the way from sort of people on progressive strategy board to James to the guys over at Common Knowledge who did my campaign map. Um, and it was it was quite a tough. Well, it wasn't too bad actually. Uh, we dealt with differences quite well. But um, the purpose of that report was to kind of get everybody on the same page about what are our strategic challenges going forward and open up the space for some discussion to be had going forward about how we address that like we didn't attempt to prescribe policy we didn't attempt to prescribe any particular direction we just said look here's the problems here's some sense of what might work going forward um and here's something we can all kind of agree on um but yeah i think it's the idea of like referencing where you're going to that report is probably a good way way of doing that because hopefully everybody is on roughly at the same page on that um from now on which i think is at least a positive step I think it's a very impressive piece of analysis and Thank you. I, guess, I guess the problem with it is also its strength is that it's it's very open to different interpretations which is probably why everyone agrees on it yeah <laughs> that's as far as we managed to get we basically said nothing goes into this report that the commissioners can't all agree on and it turns out what they could agree on ran to 150 pages but that was its limit <laughs> Andrew, Andrew, I saw you wanting to come in. I'll take you and then I'm going to go to questions from the floor. No, I, just, I just think it's this thing about strategy. And I just think for me, I mean, strategy is very, very important. And, and you do need, and you need obviously consensus on that strategy as well, which is, again, I think the left have failed to sort of achieve exactly what we're trying to achieve. And we've seen that in various different um scenarios and, and it perhaps comes to light at Labour Party conference in its uh it's probably the the uh the most transparency you can see on the difference in strategies when you have the unions and the CRPs and all, all competing against the different things that we that we want to achieve and, and how we how we go about doing that. So I think strategy is very, very important and that is where perhaps this greater coordination on the left it would be very, very key to to developing. But my fear is that obviously as you go down that route and the more you start talking about it, it's okay so i guess it's back to sort of Hannah's point on, on too much policy you start getting into too much detail on something and that's where the arguments start and that's where the the trenches are dug and you, you don't have any movement so how, how you how you negate that's going to be extremely extremely difficult for the labor left but i think it's something we've got to try and find a way through and, and then amongst that strategy once you have managed to if <laughs> you've managed to develop that strategy then have to think about the tactics on how you're going to deliver the the certain areas of that and it's, it's, it's not total rocket science but it's something that the left fail we, we spend a lot of time talking we spend a lot of time developing we spend a lot of time then going back and etc 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 there has to be that balance between involving your members at every stage of the the debate but also make sure that we come together as other coherent strategy if we want if we if we want any chance of, of, of having a transformative year in 2024 the left have to nail this and we have to nail it very very quickly Thanks, Andrew. So sort of uh, leading on from that, I get I want to take uh, the first question. And, you know, the reason why you were brought together tonight is that I guess the TWT team thought that you all represented sort of different strands of the left. Um, and um, that being like, oh, there you go. Um, and, and, and it being very, very important for all parts of the left to sort of uh, talk to each other. Um, and um, what I want to ask you is how can different sections of the left coordinate to ensure um, that the party policy that we want to see is reflected in 2024? Like what concrete actions can we take? Who do we have to reach out to? How do we build majorities in the party for, for what we want to achieve? Um, Grace, do you want to kick us off? 
Sure. So I think, so both Andrew and James have mentioned this idea uh, that James and I have put forward about bringing together momentum, the SCG, uh, some of the big left unions, you know, it would be good to have some social movement activists, representatives of, you know, XR, BLM, etc. in there as well. Um, and yeah, things like the tenants movement as well, which momentum is obviously uh, coordinating. Um, there are obviously, I mean, when I think about the our capacity to do that, the biggest challenges I see are not kind of structural, they're mainly based on basically people and personalities and, um, you know, I mean, like if you've looked on Twitter, if you've been on Twitter ever since December, a lot of the time it's been awful. Like people have been scratching each other's eyes out and like, you know, there've been huge debates between people who broadly agree on like most things. If you put two people who have had like the biggest Twitter debate you've ever seen and like, you know, gotten to the end and they're like, they basically want to kill each other into a pool of like the general population and looked at the difference between those two views and everyone else's, you would be like, what the hell? But obviously, I mean, you know, you can't have a go at people for feeling very passionately and for having these debates because obviously, you know, we bit like a lot of people, especially those people who are most out on the doorstep, who are out there kind of uh, dealing with the the worst of uh, of what we saw during the, the election campaign. They were tired and exhausted and disillusioned and disappointed. And then the coronavirus hit and we can't have those kind of in-person conversations where you're much more likely to kind of end up, you know, come, coming to some agreement. So it's kind of understandable, but I also think that's a big part of what's getting in the way. And I guess, you know, I don't want to be like, preachy and be like this is how you need to behave on social media but I think if we want to try and come together which I think you know broadly we do no one's saying no one ever comes into a meeting and says the left should be less unified um but if we want to actually make that a reality I think uh it comes back to some of the things the other panelists have said so we need to really stop focusing on the past um we need to yes learn lessons from our defeats but not bring up old you know, divides and arguments. I think, you know, maybe we all on this panel represent different traditions on the left, but like, broadly speaking, I think we've, you know, most of us have been in the same position for quite a while, which is that like, we supported Corbyn, we want a Labour government, we want a Green New Deal, we want a bunch of the same policies. So I think focusing on the things that divides us isn't really helpful. Um, and yeah, I think we all just need to be a bit, you know, on a personal level, I think about like, and you know, this is where it starts to get really airy-fairy, but I think about like um, kind of bell hooks and some of the radical feminist um, and like black feminist philosophers uh, and, and, and thinkers and the way that they say that a lot of this transformation that we want to see in wider society starts within ourselves. And I think that's something that we need to think about and reflect on just in terms of the way we talk about what's going on right now, the ways we talk to each other, recognizing that we're in a really profound and quite tense and difficult moment for a lot of people how can we actually, yeah, change the way that we talk to each other, basically, and be a bit more respectful and focus on what unites us rather than what divides us? Thanks, Grace. Um, does anyone else want to come in on this? James? Well, possibly. It's just a small thing. I mean, just said we should be more transactional as, as regards, like, the Labour leadership. We should treat it as, like, this is a political sort of set of questions that we have to deal with, so we need to organize our own forces, present what we want to happen, say what the strategy is, that kind of thing. Uh, I think Grace highlights the other part, which is probably need to be a lot less transactional with each other, frankly. 
there, there is like you know it's not like you have to treat absolutely everybody as a bitter enemy uh, somewhere else in the movement and that the, there is a great deal of common ground out there it, it, it's it, i mean it can it can be far too easy just to say that oh, we're all on the same side really it's a classic one why does the left spend its time fighting and, and there are like reasons why these fights happen um and some of it is because we probably don't as yet necessarily have a common strategy about what to do from here given where we want to get to, which as Grace said, like, let's get Labour elected, let's have it with a, a sort of radical programme, as much as that we can get. How you get there isn't necessarily very clear, and I think there will be some sharp divides, but it'd be, it'd be nice to think that we can do that without the, like, scratching everybody's eyes out, sort of, end of it. So a bit less transactional with each other, a bit more transactional with, with power. There you go. Hannah, have you got anything? Yeah, there you go. Um, yeah, a couple of things just to add. I agree with a lot of what's been said by Grace and James. Um, one of the things that helps me in kind of my work is how you structure a space. Uh, so thinking really hard about how you design spaces and political spaces in particular. So um, are you giving people space to talk? People feel a lot less defensive when they feel like they've got time and space to talk. Um, do you sort of accept that you're on a journey with a person when you're talking to them? Um, are you accepting the fact that you may end up in a different place to where you've begun. Um, and I think a lot of these things are like classic community organizing techniques, uh, but are really, really important, which is accepting difference as well. So accepting that you're working towards a shared goal, but accepting that you will have differences between you and that's okay. Um, because if you didn't have it, then you're not building a movement. Like movements are messy, difficult. Like the politics is the building of relationships and the building of the movement. And that is the political skill that we all need to get better at. Um, so these are just some of the kind of things that we try to do at Labour Together, um, which might help if like we can do more of that in our political practice. Just wanted to say that I really strongly agree with what James Grace and particularly what Hannah just said. And don't need to repeat it because they've just said it and I'm not a male MP. I'm, I'm going to go to the next question and I'm going to put it to you first, um, Nadia. There's a question from the audience. Um, how do we go about organising momentum, socialist campaign group, trade unions into a poll around which the Labour left can coalesce, set a programme and arrive at a new strategy? And is this something already in flight? I think this is this is something that's on everybody's minds, um, but it's not something that's already in the process of happening. And again, I hate to be the next person to go back to James Schneider's suggestion, um, but it was a really good one. And I think this this also points towards that. Um, I think, in fact, the TWT is probably the closest thing that we have to that space at the moment. Um, and I think that's, that's why it's really good that we're having this discussion now. But perhaps as an action point from this, all of us on this call, plus we've sort of got a representative from everybody, from those groups that were mentioned on this call. So maybe we should go away and start setting up what James was talking about and then putting it out into our wider networks of groups that we represent. I'm down. <laughs> Did you just start this this coalition on this call? I mean, <laughs> you know, a big achievement for TWT. Um, Andrew, do you want to come in on that question? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it's something we have to consider. And I've just laid out the fact that the strategy across the left has, has been, you know, 
not necessarily united where it needs to be. So there has to be a, a mechanism for us to to come together to to try and resolve that. I think you know those those people those certainly the groups that's mentioned within that question. I, mean, I have to say, are all represented on Momentum's national coordinating group. You know, so we already have not not every single sort of left union is affiliated, um, not yet anyway, but we have. Um, members of the SCGC on there. We have many of the left unions sit on there. So I think, you know, I think we, we already have that space where we are discussing these issues. And the one thing we can say is that the political priorities and the political direction that perhaps we want to go in, um, not necessarily by momentum, but as in the left, I think there is definitely a united um, uh, sort of uh, direction that we all want to travel on that. So I think these conversations, perhaps informally and perhaps unknowingly to a lot of people, are already taking place. I think to formalise these, well, then, then I think we have to raise caution because as we formalise something and it now becomes a body, and it now becomes a body of how accountable is that body? Who does it answer to? You know, how, how are those people who are selected on there? How do you involve the grassroots members? Because the one thing we've done in the Corbyn project is we've created thousands of people who, who are far more knowledgeable on policy now, are far more knowledgeable on their politics, have a much a much clearer vision of what they want and what they want to see achieved. And if you're not going to in, in, involve them, you're going to just you, you're going to um, uh, disaffiliate them, you know, they're not going to be with you and and, and and the parts of the party that we're going to need to take along with us. So I think this needs a lot of careful thought. I think, you know, for someone who, who sits on Momentum's new leadership, I'm open to suggestions, I'm open to conversations. We're talking to as many people as we possibly can about, you know, what we need to do. Um, but I think with anything like this, it's not just jumping into something. It's not just going, boom, let's let's get a meeting together. Let's just set this out. Let's, let's crack on. It does need that careful thought about how you actually engage with the wider left on, on this on this issue. James? Very quickly, although I think, I mean, I'd obviously agree with Andrew and there. The, the, the issue up against, I suppose, is that, that we, we had something like this body for a while on the left across Labour and beyond, and it, and it was operating through the leader's office. Now, that, that's not going to operate in the same way, right? So there's a need for something that had that function, which is, I think, probably bigger than Momentum or the Socialist Campaign Group or, or the trade unions. And that, that and, and until we get to that point, I think there is going to be this continual sense of some frag fragmentation and people wandering around and we're not particularly coordinating ourselves. So I think once we, particularly under current circumstances, I think if we can get there sooner rather than later, it'd be good. And I appreciate this is going to be a proper herding cats effort to try and get everybody to line up at once. But, but I think the, the outcome you get to on the other side is, is worth the effort that, that's, that could be put in. Thanks, James. Anyone else want to come in on this question? No. All right. I'll go to one last question. Takes us to a slightly different uh, topic from the audience. Um, where does constitutional and electoral reform and new models of participatory democracy fit in responding to our crises of democracy, including on the political and economic terrain? I don't know if we can get that up on the screen for everyone to see because it's quite a long question thank you thanks a lot anyone want to come in on that question i'm happy to kick us off again um i think as i was chatting those keep it to keep it to one minute okay i'll be very quick um so in terms of the kind of the constitutional reforms i think we need i kind of hinted to them um earlier i mean and i would basically help ha have them under the completion of the uk's bourgeois revolution getting rid of the house of lords i mean i would say getting rid of the monarchy but that would be probably too far so you know having some sort of constitutional reform to uh 
to um, the House of Lords, um, along with a wider set of reforms to all the institutions that have become more aloof and technocratic under neoliberalism. So I'm thinking particularly of the Bank of England, especially given the way in which Bank of England policies are kind of affecting um, the balance of income and wealth inequality in the country. Um, I'm also thinking of uh, a move towards kind of more subsidiarity. We're obviously one of the most um, politically centralised economy. Uh, Politically centralized countries in Europe were also the most economically unequal, regionally unequal um, in terms of the different economies that exist in the UK. That's a really, really big problem. I think the absence of any real traction that people have on local politics, on community politics, is a really significant part of that feeling like I don't have any kind of power and control over my life. Um, electoral reform, I mean, that's a huge one. Like, I don't even know where to begin that. Um, I don't know how much we, how far we can go on that, given that we had that failed referendum on AD not that long ago, but it's obviously something to bear in mind. Um, and then there's all this stuff around how we democratise and, uh, and and socialise ownership in the economy. Um, and I think a lot of that has to start with re-empowering the trade union movement. It would be big if Kiss, it would be huge actually, if Keir Starmer would just say, we're going to repeal the anti-union legislation. Um, and then, you know, there are a lot of things that are like broadly, you know, social democratic stuff that you could do that would be pretty acceptable to most of the Labour Party in terms of reforming corporate governance, um, in terms of thinking about like, you know, we had the National Investment Bank, right, that would go some way, especially if there was some sort of democratic structures within it, to democratising how we allocate capital across the economy. I could go on, but I've gone over a minute. So um, I will suggest that you pick up a copy of my Look, if you would like to hear more. <laughs> um, anyone else want to come in on this? Go on, Andrew. I think, I think, I think for me, I mean, that the, the question of constitutional electoral reform is, is a pretty complicated one, you know, and I think, I think the basis for people to try and understand that is a you know, it's difficult, but touching on what, what Grace said about, um, you know, impacting the trade unions and talking about trade union legislation, I think that comes back to part of what the strategy needs to be be around the left, because if you're going to build power, if you're going to build power in your communities, well, the workplace is a, a key to that. And the one thing you'll find as a trade unionist is, is you're con continuously under attack when it comes to, um, you know, how do you organise in the workplace, all the legislation you need to get through, all the anti-trade union laws that are around you. And, and, and pretty much it's, it's understandable that a lot of people fail to organise in their workplace, but then also to try and actually fight back because everything is stacked against them to do that. So feeling powerless in the workplace is a common thing that we see across all sectors. Um, you know, it's only, it's only very well-organised sectors, which, you know, take my, my sector, firefighting, we've been unionised for, for 100 years. You know, so we've, we've built we've built all that knowledge that we need to continuously fight back. But these new areas and, and the different sort of insecure jobs that are up there, very, very difficult. And that's when people feel powerless and then they lose hope and then they're therefore, um, you know, are unable to change things. So again, when it comes to strategy, we need to be talking about power in the workplace. We need to be talking about repealing all anti-trade union laws, not just what the Tories are putting, they, they all need to go. And we need to be putting in, um, you know, quality workers' rights that give the power back to the workplace and, and, and building that sort of feeling that you can actually change things. And, and through democratic structures, as is in a trade union, to be able to vote for strike action, to vote what that action needs to be, and so on. And, and you know, that's something I would be very keen to sort of see us developing on the left. We, we're sort of at time. I'm going to give the three of you who haven't spoken last question 30 seconds, starting with Nadia, um, and then we're unfortunately going to have to wrap up. Go on, Nadia. Okay, electoral reform. Um, first past the post is really impeding our ability to win an election. I think that electoral reform is 
really important. Um, and I'm working with the Labour campaign for electoral reform. Completely agree with Andrew and Grace on the need to repeal all the anti-union laws. And I've been proud to work with FMU on this since the beginning of the campaign. It's, um, it's Labour Party conference decided policy from excessive conferences. So let's keep campaigning on it. Um, in terms of how this one fits into responding to the crisis, well, I think as well as the coronavirus crisis, climate crisis, and all the other crises we've mentioned, we've also got a crisis in democracy. And I think that manifested itself largely in the Brexit vote. And if, if that's not enough of a reason to entrench proper democratic and localised forms of decision-making and public ownership, then I don't know what is. Thanks, Nadia. Hannah? Um, just to say I agree with pretty much everything that's been said so far. Um, democracy is really important and that's where we get into this question of inequality of power, which I think is the biggest unmet question of kind of Labour politics so far. Um, and I think it's that question of like at the moment the only way people feel like they're engaged in democracy is every four years in an election and that's not good enough and we need to think much more widely about what forms of democracy, that's participatory, that's deliberative, there's so many different practices and ways of participating and empowering people that we just aren't even beginning to look at. And I think there's been some really interesting thinking on the left from Compass um, and other groups on this. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is I agree completely with Andrew's um, points about sort of like power in the workplace. I mean, the biggest question that I always ask myself, I'm just like, what if Uber drivers had access to the algorithm that determines their work? Like, why is that not something we're asking for? Why are we not asking for that transparency? And like, these are really pertinent questions to people's sense of autonomy and control uh, and power. So I think there's so much we can say and do on that that we haven't even begun to start exploring. Thanks, Anna. James, you got the final word. Oh God, uh, right, well, I mean, look, uh, I agree with what Hannah said. I think inequality of power is a really nice way to talk about this actually, or, or potentially is that the, the question we haven't really touched on is, is about, um, you know, big data and, and what we do, the, the coronavirus has massively accelerated uh, and expanded the, the use of, of data in all our lives in one way or another, and it's completely depowering. You're, you're sort of taken away from yourself and somebody is, is going to try and set up systems to uh, attempt to manage and control how you operate. There's, there's little more, that there's little you can think of that's more disempowering than this. So, so thinking about ways that we can meaningfully bring some of that back in. Uh, and actually that, that is a local, that is weirdly a local democracy, city democracy question. The places that have done a good job in this have been like Barcelona, Amsterdam, it's been local councils, city authorities that started to address that one. Um, I think uh, electoral reform we should we should campaign for, but it also implies a, a slightly different, quite a seriously different electoral strategy in like how you approach the election. Once you're saying we will have electoral reform, that's a whole uh, other question. And of course, there's a massive Scottish elephant in the room on this, which we haven't really touched on, which like one way or the other, we're going to have to find a, a way to deal with. I, I did think Keir Starmer talking about Radical federalism was was not a bad sort of start to thinking about this. I think it needs to be massively less wonkish than talking about radical federalism or whatever, because it doesn't necessarily mean much to people. But either we we resolve this question successfully for the Labour Party, or we, we seriously trip over it next year, uh, and that's a that's a suitably bleak ending for you. Thanks so much, James, and thanks everyone else um, for coming and speaking, and everyone for attending. Um, as ever, to continue the discussions, we've set up a dedicated space in our community forum. Um, and if you've already set up an account, you can just click the link that we're posting in the chat uh, to find the relevant discussion thread to this event. Um, and if you're registered for the festival, check your email for your sign-up form 
And of course, you can still register for other events. I can't believe it, but there is still another week of TWT going on till Sunday. Uh, so make sure that you sort of find out about other events going on. And then finally, the obligatory shout out, please, please, please join the TWT Supporters Network. Um, if you enjoyed the session, it will really, really help TWT put on further events like this and keep going for another five years and longer. Thanks everyone for joining and good night. View the full TWT 20 program and become a supporter today to help us deliver political education all year round at theworldtransformed.org.